Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that is very perceptive assholes. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we are working our way through the good, the bad, and the mind-controlling of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Jessica Jones Season 1, Episodes 1 and 2. All right, Lonnie, much to the shock of absolutely no one, we're going to start with a four-color fact about Jessica Jones. All right, give it to me. However, I will not be telling you everything there is to know about Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to lay some basic groundwork, but then we have several more episodes. I will return to her regularly. Okay, great. Now, this is partly to keep things organized, because at mm-hmm. this point, Jessica has 18 years of history. Mm-hmm. And you're probably thinking, but Joshua, that should be so much easier than 50 years of Ant-Man or whatever, right? <laughs> Not so much, because 18 is so recent, we don't know which parts are actually going to be important yet. Oh, right. So it's basically all important, right? <laughs> so the basics. Jessica Jones first appeared at the dawn of the aughts in 2001 <laughs> in her very own book, Alias Number One. Mm-hmm. Alias was drawn by Michael Gados and written by Brian Michael Bendis. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to return to Bendis later, but let's keep the focus on Jessica for now. Mm -hmm. She was introduced in that first issue in almost exactly the same way that she was introduced in this show. She's a serious, hard-boiled private detective with low-end powers like super strength, flight, yes, really, and self-destructive tendencies that approach superhuman levels. (laughs) Now, I say low end not to denigrate her personally, but because she really is strong as hell, but more like Spider-Man level, not Thor level. Right. Mm -hmm. And sure, she can fly, but man, she is really bad at it. Oh, I love that. I love that she's got a power she doesn't know how to handle, at least in the, you know, in the comics. No, it's really good. And it does show up on the show eventually, although I think Mm -hmm. she describes it as like uh, uh, jumping really far badly or something like that (laughs) which makes more sense for the somewhat more grounded pardon the pun tone of the netflix Mm -hmm. series like she's really strong she should be able to jump really far you know Mm -hmm. right there in the first couple of issues of alias it's suggested that she's got a few superpowered contacts on the street and low-key connections to the wider superhero world one of her few friends is carol danvers Wow. Now, at the time, Carol was going by, I think, Warbird. So as you can imagine from a shit name like that, like that, this was not as high profile a time for Carol as, say, 2019, when she's calling yes. herself Captain Marvel and breaking a billy at the box office. <laughs> Otherwise, Jessica's personality is very similar to how she's portrayed on the show. She's very good at digging up dirt, mostly because she believes with a near religious fervor that other people are the fucking worst. Oh, they are. She's right. Well, we'll get to it. Um, <laughs> because as a hard-boiled detective with a heart of gold, she constantly proves herself wrong by giving a damn about the cases she takes and the innocent mm-hmm. people that are being hurt by them. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot more to say about Jessica, a lot, but we'll unravel all that as the show progresses since I know some a-holes are watching along with us and I don't want to spoil too much. 
So instead, I'll mention a thing you may want to keep in mind if you decide to enjoy the show enough to revisit Jessica's comic book roots. First, you have to realize that in 2001, Marvel thought it was a good idea to create what they called a Max imprint. Marvel Mm -hmm. Max was basically what if superheroes were allowed to say fuck and also fuck. (laughs) It is exactly the level of sort of eighth grade nonsense that you would expect in books like The Punisher. Mm -hmm. But in Alias, it was Brian Michael Bendis trying to do some stuff. Yeah. Now, you've heard me talk about Brian Michael Bendis before, most recently in terms of Daisy Quake's guy Johnson (laughs) and how her mom is a prostitute and she's a troubled bad girl. Right. Mm -hmm. These are what we in the business call red flags. (laughs) So let me say, it's been 20 years, and by all accounts, Bendis has gotten a lot better about his approach to writing women Mm -hmm. as well as people of color. But... Back in 2001, this shit was rough. Oh, no. (laughs) In fact, I am going to borrow from a conversation with personal friend and friend of the pod, Matt Lipperata. Hi, Matt. Mm -hmm. Hi, Matt. (laughs) And this is a statement that's going to be both instantly understandable and yet controversial to listeners of the Chipperish catalog. Jessica is Brian Michael Bendis' Buffy. Okay. Now, what I mean by this is... What you have is a more or less well-meaning male writer who is trying to write a God help us strong Um, female character, (laughs) but does so in a very problematic way. And frankly, much like Buffy, the character has been treated better by many of the hands that crafted her after the initial creator. Mm -hmm. Although Bendis has had a long career at Marvel since this time and returns to her often. And when Mm -hmm. he does return to her, he brings that better viewpoint that he's developing with him. So it's an evolving process. I'm just saying, if you're going to get in the Wayback Machine to 2001, buckle up. (laughs) I can only imagine. Well, for example, I mean, some of it lives into the show, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's impossible to ignore that in 2001, Bendis felt the need to give his flagship capital SFC strong female character Mm -hmm. an origin based in rape. Right. And this origin is an excuse to write her as self-destructive and misanthropic because she's basically a traditional toxic masculine character who just happens to be a woman. Yes, exactly. And that is the problem with a lot of these strong female characters, quote unquote, that a lot of these men like to write. Right. You know, yeah. And in 2019, this is not what Mm -hmm. I would call a deft touch. Right. For another example, even with the explicit rating we have on Listen Up A-Holes, I do Mm -hmm. not want to go too deeply into how Bendis characterized Jessica and Luke Cage's relationship or how Jessica used it as a weapon against herself. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, I think Bendis is a talented writer who has polished his skills and his overall approach in the last 18 years. But if you're appreciating Jessica's story on the show, maybe just stick with that. <laughs> We're going to talk more about this, but it was a wise choice to put women in charge of telling this story in a way that treats the subject matter with the gravity and the feminine viewpoint that it really deserves. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. So he'll be around, and I have more to say, but he's also got his own show. So all I'm going to say for now 
<laughs> is that Luke Cage is a man with super strength and unbreakable skin who first appeared in Luke Cage Hero for Hire number one in 1972. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sorry to tease, but that man's got his whole other show and deserves to have his dirty laundry aired there, especially because his dirty laundry mostly involves yellow silk shirts open to the navel. <laughs> All right, amen. <laughs> So it may be a long wait, but boy, yeah. will I have things to say about Luke Cage. I <laughs> love that guy. All right. Jaron Hogarth. Mm-hmm. Jaron Hogarth is a gender-swapped Jerry Hogarth for this show. Okay. But the comic book version is a man. He mm-hmm. first appeared in Iron Fist number 7 in 1976. He is an attorney who worked with Wendell Rand, the father of mm-hmm. Daniel Rand, who is a very important person who gets his own show later. So we'll talk <laughs> more about him then. Jaron is very much a secondary character in Luke Cage and Danny's stories, but a mm-hmm. massively important and influential one. He's usually portrayed as significantly more principled than his MCU counterpart, mm-hmm. though no less a brilliant legal mind. But again, kind of like Luke, Jaron is really hard to talk about in detail since his stories are so tied to Luke and Danny's. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is one reason I was surprised to see a version of him introduced in Jessica's show. Mm-hmm. Although she is magnificent and I forgive everything. <laughs> now let's also bring up our next door neighbor, Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Malcolm Ducasse on the show is not a person that I think really has a tie to the comic books, but... okay. If you do decide to go back and reread Alias, there is a character mm-hmm. called Malcolm Powder who appears in Alias number six in 2002. Mm-hmm. He has almost nothing in common with the Malcolm of the show. He's white and not a drug right. user for one thing, but they have a couple of things in common that I will talk about later because, again, I'm trying not to give away too much for the a-holes that are right. coming in unspoiled. But there's a lot of material here that kind of like feeds into all of these stories. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's why I I want you to kind of uh, uh, treat the four color facts as evolving themselves as we go, because otherwise Mm -hmm. we would just do an entire episode that was three times the length of our usual time talking about all of these different characters. Mm -hmm. And speaking of me going on and on about somebody who may or may not deserve it based on this particular (laughs) show, Trish Walker also has a comic book counterpart. Uh Uh-huh. She is based on an existing superhero character, but I will not talk about it right now, mainly because she's my absolute favorite superhero character of all time, and I have a lot to say about her. (laughs) So expect a great discussion of Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, in our next episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. I love that. You've been talking about Hellcat. I mean, Hellcat is your favorite. You've been talking about her ever since I can remember. I love her. So it's going to be really interesting to have that conversation. I need to read some of those comics. Maybe we'll do a Patreon exclusive where I read some some Hellcat and we talk about it. Oh, my gosh. That makes my heart sing because there is a series that came out just after Civil War where she's the Uh only superhero in Alaska. That is amazing. I love it. Let's read it. Let's do it for Two Hosts Minimum. Two host minimum, by the way, we have uh, Joshua and Kelly talking about uh, Superman comics uh, up for Patreon subscribers. So if you guys haven't uh, haven't gotten that yet, haven't thrown your dollar in the bin, uh, it's well worth it. And then I'm going to get to do it about Hellcat. I don't know what to do with myself. Let's do it, man. It'll be fun. Oh, I'm fanning (laughs) myself like it's gone with the wind in here. (laughs) Similarly to Trish. 
Mm -hmm. There are there is another character that we will have plenty of opportunities to discuss as the show goes on. So I am going to punt Kilgrave into the future. I know he shows okay. up here. His presence is inseparable from the entire first season. So mm -hmm. we will get to him. But there is kind of a lot, you know, mm -hmm. both in terms of his character before he was integrated into Jessica Jones's backstory and the changes after. Right. Mm -hmm. So. That's for the future, but I didn't want anybody to think that I forgot he existed. <laughs> and just to, you know, just to tease, mm -hmm. I want you to know that in the comics, his name is literally Kilgrave the Purple Man. So just let that simmer and do your best not to go look him up on Wikipedia. I kind of love it. I really do want to go look him up on Wikipedia. Just, just you wait. Just you wait. <laughs> No, I love it. All right. So for production notes, we're going to go into this real quickly and just kind of address Jessica Jones as one of the Netflix series that we saw a lot of those dropping um, on Netflix for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, season one of Jessica Jones dropped on November 20th, 2015. Uh, the showrunner creator, as we kind of talked about a little bit before, is Melissa Rosenberg. So we have a woman in charge of this show. Um, and she has written and produced for a bunch of shows, including Party of Five, The O.C., Dexter, but just a ton of stuff, which is really, really great. Um, but what's really fun and interesting to me about this is that for a Marvel show to be run by a woman at all is pretty great. But on top of that, we have women in either the director or writer role for almost all of the episodes in season one. And that is almost unheard of. I really love it. I think that that's fantastic. And I think that it does make a big difference in the way that the show is presented because like you were talking about before, we have this thing where, um, you know, people are like, oh, you know, we don't have enough female characters doing stuff. And so they're like, all right, you know, the, the men are like, okay, well, we'll just write our strong female character, quote unquote. Um, and then they end up writing men with boobs. You know, they're yeah. like, okay, they're, they're, they have everything, like their entire perspective on the world is a male perspective. On top of that, we're going to put her in a leather cat suit. She's going to have double D breasts. You know, her ass is going to be out to here. And, uh, and we're going to have her like jumping around and kicking men in the face all the time. But this is, you know, this is the strong female character. Um, and I think that perhaps had women in general uh, requested well-written female characters, uh, A, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. True. <laughs> because, because nobody knew how to do it. Uh, be, we would have had to do it ourselves. This is just the thing. You know what? You got to want it done right. You got to do it yourself. So women need to tell these stories. We need people of color, you know, um, behind the scenes on these. We need, um, we need that diversity in the storytellers. And then that's how we end up getting something like Jessica Jones, um, which I think is really interesting in a lot of ways. And I really like the way in which she's, she's represented um, in this show while still being able to, you know, kick a man in the face, right? Sure. Which is fine. I'm not saying a strong female character can't do that. I'm saying that if that is the extent of what makes her a strong female character, you got some issues, you know? Yeah, and, and I wanna say again, like all the building blocks that we get for the show exist yeah. in Alias. Yeah. But, there is, there's just a real, it's not even that Bendis did a bad job. It's that he didn't approach it in a way of, oh, I need to, I don't know, talk to women who are survivors of sexual assault and see right. if I can integrate that viewpoint into mm -hmm. the character. No, he mm -hmm. saw an opportunity to write like a hard-boiled detective character, decided it would be interesting to make her a woman, and then yeah. 
apropos of very little, that it would be interesting mm-hmm. to make rape part of her origin. These aren't like yeah. bad choices. It's just you have no, to approach have them to with a certain it. viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if you're going to talk about rape, you have to earn it. If you're going to talk about World War II, you cannot whitewash all the Nazi shit out of that and, like, pretend that it's just Hydra and Red Skull. You know, these are the things that, like, if you're going to talk about things, you can talk about them. You can do them, but you have to earn it by really thinking about that experience and diving into it. On top of which, as you earn it, you're going to tell better stories anyway. It's true, and I think that that is reflected in brian michael bendis's overall career i like i like the fact that he has evolved i think that that's great and i think that like you know what else can you ask everybody screws stuff up you don't know what you don't know until you find out that you didn't know it you know and then you can change but until then you don't know um so i mean like i don't like i'm I'm not throwing shade you know like i get it but i think that now that we have women telling stories we have more people of color telling more stories um we're getting a better sense of you know, this isn't just a, you know, capital W woman. This is a character. This yes. is a person. Yeah. And that's how we're looking at her instead of like, oh, it's a woman. She has boobs and she hits people. Strong female character. You know, um, there's more to it than that. It's much more complicated. All right. So let's go ahead and get into our episode summaries, starting with episode 101, a.k.a. Ladies Night. In AKA Ladies Night, we are introduced to Jessica Jones, a superpowered alcoholic private investigator with a haunted past and no fucks left to give. Jessica is surrounded by what you might call a fractured community. Jerry, the lawyer who hires her to do jobs others can't do. Malcolm, the junkie next door. And Trish, the best friend slash sister who doesn't really talk to her anymore. And the ghost of Kilgrave, the psychopath ex who continues to haunt her dreams. Jessica takes on a case to find Hope, the daughter of Bob and Barbara Schlotman, who has sort of gone missing. She calls to say not to worry, but no one actually knows where she is. Jessica goes to visit Hope's roommate, who tells her that Hope met some guy and ran off, and that's all there is to it. Jessica works the Schlotman case during the day, but at night she stalks a dive bar and Luke, the guy who owns it. She spends ladies' night getting tanked in his bar and then sleeps with him, but runs out when she sees a picture of a woman in his bathroom medicine cabinet. The next day, Jessica follows up on a lead in the Schlotman case and discovers that Hope's new boyfriend is actually Kilgrave, a mind-controlling Englishman and the source of Jessica's trauma and panics. She confronts Hope's parents, who describe him when telling her who recommended her to them, and she tells them to book it out of town, which is also her plan. In need of money for a one-way ticket to Hong Kong, Jessica visits Trish, the sort of sister whose family she moved in with when her family died, and asks for money to skip town. She tells Trish that Kilgrave is back, despite the fact that he died last year and has a new girl. And Trish says that Jessica should stay and rescue the girl. Jessica refuses, and Trish gives her the money to skip town. In the cab on the way to the airport, Jessica's guilt gets to her, and she makes a stop at the hotel where Kilgrave lived. She goes to his floor and pulls the fire alarm, then drags a screaming Hope out. Back at her apartment, she talks to Hope about Kilgrave's mind control. Eventually, she says, it wears off. She delivers Hope to her parents and they leave, but when they're in the elevator, Hope pulls out a gun and kills her parents before Jessica can stop her. Jessica runs out to get in a cab, then changes her mind and goes back into the building. AKA Ladies Night was written by Melissa Rosenberg and directed by S.J. Clarkson. All right, a little note before we get started. S.J. Clarkson, also a woman. 
I was very pleased to see that we have women completely above the line doing the, the creative work on this. I mean, there were men, I'm sure, involved in the staff and everything, but the director and writer are both women on this episode, and I really like that. It matters and it shows. I think it really does. I mean, we've got a very cool... I mean, the first thing like I kind of want to talk about here you know, with Jessica Jones is like diving right into this aesthetic you know we've got the opening with these very comic book styled credits um, we've got the classic noir vo um, we don't go to vo a whole lot as we get moving but we start and we open with it you know mm-hmm. um we've got that kind of dirty grimy new york you know um and uh, and jessica kind of talking about all of this stuff one of the things that i really like though that we have in all of this aesthetic is that we don't have the male gay's version of this you know quote unquote strong female character which usually involves skin tight outfits and like boobs out to here and all this stuff um jessica is actually for the most part really covered up you know she's wearing you know dark jeans a loose leather jacket this bulky scarf you know the opening segment almost feels like a deliberate fuck you to the male gaze and i'm kind of here for that No, I think that that even carries out to where she's less covered up. Like when she gets ready for bed or gets out of bed, it's shot like a person getting into or out of bed. Not like, let's take a good look at her, you know. Exactly. We don't have those lingering shots that are from the angle of right right under her ass or, you know, right at her boobs or whatever. Like we don't have that. And so even when she's not completely right and she's not done up you know her hair is almost always messy and her makeup is almost always smudged you know and I like that you know I mean I think she's beautiful Kristen Ritter beautiful girl beautiful actress you know it doesn't take away anything from her but it 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 makes her more real which I think is a problem with the way that that men have traditionally seen women you know in Hollywood is that they're not real they're very plasticized you know Mm -hmm. and she's not plasticized which I love and if she were, it would really undermine the tone that they're going for yeah. with this show. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to interject here because we need to talk for a moment about hard-boiled detectives. Yes, I'm very excited to get in this conversation. Okay, so I always do the four-color facts, but you know, these are like pulp facts. Yeah. It's older even, yeah. I love it. Also, Lonnie and I tend to say noir stylings. We're probably going to say that a lot. And it's mm-hmm. not wrong, Right. But in terms of Jessica Jones, it's not as specific as we could be either. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to get like a little technical and pedantic, noir is actually a style of film that has grown into kind of a genre unto itself. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course, we've seen noir films about detectives and criminals, but we've also seen them about ballerinas, professional wrestlers and insurance salesmen. <laughs> right. We've, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's applicable all over. We, we've also mm-hmm. seen it through exploitation lenses in Japanese girl gangster movies and also, you know, black private dicks that are sex machines for all the chicks. <laughs> Shaft. Are you talking about Shaft? Damn right. <laughs> but... The reason we have noir at all is because of the hard-boiled detective. Mm -hmm. And Jessica falls much more squarely into that genre than the broader noir. Sure. Mm -hmm. So noir has its roots in gangsters and hard-boiled detective stories in pulp magazines. Mm -hmm. These are the very cheap, disposable entertainment options that were available to you before television. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were targeted more squarely at adults, whereas comic books, which is I describe comic books almost exactly the same way, but they were more targeted at children. Mm -hmm. 
for a little insight into hard-boiled detectives, I am going to quote one of my own literary heroes, Raymond Chandler. He he actually mm -hmm. wrote a essay called The Simple Art of Murder that goes into a little detail about the hard-boiled detective. Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is a hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world. He will take no man's money dishonestly and no man's insolence without a due and dispassionate revenge. He is a lonely man and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man or be very sorry you ever saw him. The story is this man's adventure in search of a hidden truth, and it would be no adventure if it did not happen to a man fit for adventure. If there were enough like him, the world would be a very safe place to live in without becoming too dull to be worth living in. Interesting. Okay, I love that quote. Obviously, I love Chandler. <laughs> and I'm going to put on the label that that betrays a lot of inherent chauvinism in his worldview. Yeah. Because we only talk about the detective as a man. Well, right. There is that. There's there's a certain level of, um, I, and I mean, this is not to like come down on Chandler or anything. I mean, this is just part of it. It's it's this, we have all of this detail into this, like, you know, characterization of this one particular type of man, you know, and I don't think I've ever seen like a woman, you know, writer talk about women in this. She's this kind of woman and she's that kind of woman, like this this sense of their own mythological dramatization, you know, of like what it means to be a man, you know, always kind of throws me off a little bit whenever I read that stuff. Cause I'm like, Oh God, just shut up. You know? Okay. I get you. And it's fair. No, I mean, I, I see, I see where he's come from. I see what he's doing. And I think that that's great, but there is something like, it's not just like the, the man, but the privilege of the idea that anybody gives a fuck what kind of person you are, that anybody gives a fuck what kind of man you are. Like, I don't know. I hope this is making me sound like an asshole, but whatever. I'm already no, in no, it, no. so whatever. Um, Look, there's a couple of things. I, I get you like a hundred percent, but there's, there's a couple of things that I want to interject here because they're very mm -hmm. important to hard boiled and then eventually noir fiction. They really are. Yes. And mm -hmm. one of those things is that these stories would just be tales of awful woe if there weren't a certain poeticism to them. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Awful things happening to awful people is real life. Awful things happening to awful people with poetry is noir. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. I mean, it's not only that, but that's, you know, that's really important. So the idea that there's a, a like a very literary or poetic approach to what what would this character really be like is mm -hmm. important i think to what we get the other thing is and this this becomes important to noir in a much more broad sense but when mm -hmm. chandler wrote that we're talking about 20s 30s and 40s there is yeah. a massive upheaval in what it means to be a man and what it means to be a white man Oh, I was just going to say, we do need to make that distinction because this isn't just a man. This is this is the height of privilege. Yes. You know, like this is a white man. Yeah. And, and, and in 2019, I can stand here and say good and mean it right. wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. At the same time in 2019, I can take a look at that and understand why it was causing so much turmoil in uh -huh. what at the time we would have considered the average reader. 
right? right. Which is straight white man who is now questioning mm-hmm. is is the fact that I'm a man as important as it used to be? And the answer is probably not. Is the mm-hmm. fact that I'm white as important and powerful as it used to be? And the answer is probably not because it really wasn't, mm-hmm. although we would not see that come to full fruition for decades and are still yes. waiting, honestly. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the way that that gets expanded into the noir worldview as a whole when we stop mm-hmm. centering only white men is that noir is always about the fact that our systems don't work well enough. Right. Mm-hmm. And and Good. so we're we're standing on shifting sands. We are standing on a shaky foundation. And so you need this person who can step out of that system and back mm-hmm. into that system as necessary to really sort things out. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, I think Jessica fits the mold totally. Oh, absolutely. No, that's really great. I like that perspective on it. So so that is, I mean, tough fucking luck, white men of the 20s and 30s. Tough shit. <laughs> who cares? But you have to recognize that that's the seed in this that grows into noir always being about the fact that shit just doesn't work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would see this resurge again with noir in the 50s, right? Because mm-hmm. we're very concerned about commies. Right. You would see it again in the 70s. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of the... Noir films in the 70s were set in previous times. Not all of them, but a lot, like uh, mm-hmm. Chinatown being a really good example. Right. Chinatown mm-hmm. is about Los Angeles in the 70s while being set in Los Angeles in the 30s and 40s. You right. Know. Mm-hmm. So, fuck them. Who cares? You're upset about not being as white or as man as you used to be. I don't care. But literarily, <laughs> it really matters. No, and definitely it does. It does. It's just that it's, it's I think that... Noir being couched so specifically in this highly privileged, like, white man's world, and especially a white man's world where he's like, oh, it's all terrible, and it's all, you know, because it's not as accommodating to him as it has been forever, you know? Yeah. So for me, like, within that context, I get into this very specific, you know, like, Sam Spadey, you know, um, noir, and part of me wants to roll my eyes with, he's a man like no other man. He's a man like every other man, like all that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh my God, you know, whatever. Um, because it is so couched in this this presumptive privilege of this is about very specifically my white male empowered experience. And I'm going to whine about my white male empowered experience. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's where it gets to me. Like it grates on me. But the thing that I do love about noir is this idea that it does look at the world as the flaming dumpster fire shithole that it can be at times, yeah, you know, it's and yeah. actually tries to engage with that and, and look at it rather than, I mean, you know, from this plasticine sort of viewpoint where we can, you know, in, in, the, in the course of a story, save the day and everything's great. You know, in a noir world, everything is never great. The best you can hope for is that maybe in a, for a moment, because of what you did, things are a little less painful. You know? That's you're absolutely. We can save the day, but it will mm-hmm. not be great. It will just be less shit. It's exactly it's it, and it's also you can save the day for today, Ex- but tomorrow yes, yes, it's yes. gonna be this shit again. And I I like that. I mean, so there's a ton of stuff that I really really like about noir, and I don't mean to shit on Raymond Chandler. And I know that you love him, and there are a lot of good things. There's there was good writing in there. It's just that it's such it's dripping with this white male privilege and yet dissatisfaction. 
with everything. Yes. And I'm like, what else do you want? <laughs> you built this world. You fucked this world. And now you're complaining about this world. Like, meanwhile, the rest of us have to deal with not just what you're dealing with, but like everything else that you end up putting on us. So um, so it does grate on me a little bit. While at the same time, I can really appreciate that perspective and I love the way that it's it's kind of realized in Jessica Jones yeah I want to say I, I, I'll get your opinion but I feel like <laughs> I could take that entire thing change all of the pronouns to either feminine pronouns or gender neutral ones and give it to right. somebody who does not have you know the context to know that it started kind of full of white male bullshit and yeah. that you could still wind up with an amazing protagonist with this yes, kind of absolutely. worldview, it both cannot be divorced from its underpinnings as far as like talking mm -hmm. literary criticism. But if we just gave this to a new generation, I feel like it would really like inflame the desire to write a character like this minus all that bullshit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the only thing like what there's nothing wrong in the writing itself and in the concept work itself. I think that's really good, strong concept work. It's when you look at it in context with the world <laughs> that it was written in and who wrote it. Yeah, totally. And you look at it like that and you're like, oh, fuck you, dude. You know, so like, and it's, but you can look at it. I mean, I can see that in both ways. You know, they're, they're contradictory thoughts, but I can see both the quality of it, you know, and the strength of it and what makes it so great and compelling. While at the same time, in this greater context, seeing also that there's, you know, there's issues with the very specific perspective from which that is written. Yeah, this is why I like seeing it spread out, yeah. honestly, yeah. because I love the mm -hmm. genre. I love the concept. Yeah. But I'm over myself as or trying to be. So, <laughs> you know, let's do this about somebody like Jessica. Right, right. Well, you know, I mean, and here's the thing, like I can, you know, talk about all this stuff. If we ever get to a point where we're talking about romance, these tables going to flip because romance has so many problems. <laughs> romance is really, really problematic. I freaking love it. So we need to do a romantic comedy, too, for the patrons. Oh, we're doing it. Remember, that's actually worth <laughs> yes. mentioning, too, because before we do two host minimum about Patsy Walker Hellcat, we are going to watch Vamps. Yes. Which is a romantic comedy apparently about vampire women that stars Kristen Ritter. So, yeah. Ties in. I mean, in. clearly, clearly that has to happen. So, guys, I'm just saying, throw a dollar, patreon.com slash chipperish. That's how you get access to all of these great little extras that we're going to be doing and having so much fun talking about. So to kind of like boil this on down, like like to yes. get out of this so we can out of this conversation of hard boiled stuff so we can get into Jessica specifically. Yes. Uh, I really do feel like this this whole like let's just gender neutralize it. You know, they mm -hmm. they can consider themselves a person of principle while not considering themselves at all good. Right. That's Jessica. Mm -hmm. They may claim that they will never compromise their principles because they are on a search for truth or let's be honest, a truth. But they also. Yes quietly understand that getting to that truth will require them to tarnish that heart of gold. Mm -hmm. And there's a tagline from a movie brick, which is a weird retelling of a noir genre story. But yeah. the tagline is great and really sums up noir or hard boiled as a whole for me, which is there's not much chance of coming out clean. Yeah. So love it. I love hard-boiled detectives right next to superheroes. They are like foundational genre pieces for me as a writer. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And Jessica Jones, the show, is one of the best modern takes on the hard-boiled detective that takes into account those changes in the world since we invented the concept in the 20s and 30s. It's it's Absolutely. It's an apotheosis of these things. So, it's No, great. it's really really good. And and the thing is like for me, when I look at these noir stories, these hard-boiled stories, you know, I can enjoy them. I don't respond to them, I think, the, quite the way that you do, you know, um, because it's just, it's not necessarily, I, I like a, a lighter, happier, you know, I'm a romantic comedy girl, right. what can I say? But I do, like, love and appreciate them from the storytelling perspective. I love the the like commitment to aesthetic you yes. know and aesthetic in storytelling you know is is visual in part but it is not entirely visual it is this whole package of you know tone and theme and focus and um and you know uh, content you know the, the what are you talking about in the story and noir has such a strong sense of aesthetic that whenever i engage with a noir story i'm always blown away by that by how strong that sense of setting and place and tone and world the world building that happens in these stories as it happens in jessica jones is so beautifully done it's so clear and you're just in this space and you know exactly where you are and how that world works right from jump it's true it's i love all that is that is a good way to put a lot of the stuff that i love about it and and even (laughs) you know not only are you generally more interested in the happier and lighter things honestly so am i these days but there's this there's this saying that i ran into in terms of superhero comics where they say the golden age of superhero comics is eight Uh uh-huh you love superheroes because you discovered them when you were a child, right? And then you go mm-hmm. you go forward. Um, or not everybody, but, you know, especially not now, but broadly, that used to be the case. Right. And mm-hmm. for me, I read a lot of mysteries when I was a kid. When I was younger, I read Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then I accidentally discovered Chandler in oh. about eighth grade and read wow. the first page of The Big Sleep, his first novel. And I instantly yeah. knew that... One, this was completely different than all the other detective stories that I've ever read. And two, mm-hmm. I was really going to be into it. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. it was a, there's a golden age moment <laughs> or a golden <laughs> moment, you know, that I discovered it. And sure, yeah, it just yeah. impressed on me. So here we are. I love it. I love it. All right. So Jessica, let's go ahead and talk a bit about our main character, Jessica. We've talked a little bit about how she is allowed to be a woman without being a quote unquote strong female character. She's actually a strong character who happens to be female. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got this real hard edge that I like to her. Um, you know, we open up with her, uh, you know, arguing with the client and then throwing him through the glass window. <laughs> in her door for both apartment and place of business, which I always find to be really interesting. I'm sure there's going to be zoning complaints about that. (laughs) I also want to mention, I have a whole theory built around Jessica's door as a metaphor for her life that we will revisit at the end of this episode. Oh, good, good. I can't wait to have that discussion because I was thinking about that, but I hadn't really come to anything. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about that. Um, As a character, I like her a lot. I like Kristen Ritter in the role and I wasn't sure how I was going to respond to that because Kristen Ritter is, you know, she is um, Gia from Veronica Mars. Mm -hmm. You know, she is 
bouncy. She is, you know, the the girl from Don't Trust the the Bee in Apartment Twenty Three or whatever that yes, was, yes. short run. It was a very fun uh, comedy series, but it was short run. But she was in that. And she played this, you know, essentially uh, kind of female, you know, focused uh, manic pixie dream girl. You know, um, so she's she's very fun. But I've always seen her in these like much much lighter kinds of stories and so to see her here i was like how is she gonna pull this off and i think that she really does oh she kills it she i was mm-hmm. i shared these concerns um yeah. and then but you know was like but i I'm, I'm here for the rest of this you know like let's see how this goes yeah. and she just kills it she absolutely nails it oh my god she's amazing i think one of my favorite things early on is when she is uh, doing her, you know, her research. She's making phone calls to try to find out where the guy is that she's got to serve for Jerry. And um, she's on the toilet, you know, like she's just sitting there on the toilet making phone calls. She's got her laptop there. She's doing business in every way you know, possible. <laughs> um, and it's just like I love the the fact that we did that like i generally don't prefer like you know humiliation toilet stuff like when we humiliate a character by giving them diarrhea in the middle of a street for fun you know (laughs) um and i hate for some reason like there was there was a run there i don't know for a while where like every show i was watching had some man peeing and i'm like i don't really care like i don't i don't want to see that you know um but this was really i just liked how raw and and not um you know not beautiful that was it really was a fuck you to the male gaze yes it's it's Mm -hmm. not shot at all in a prurient way and, no, and listen, no. if that's not your thing, trust me, it can be shot in a prurient way, you know? Oh, they could have absolutely done that. The whole purpose of having her on the toilet was for exposure, you know? Yeah. Um, but that wasn't what they were doing. And additionally, a little bit of that um, setting the stage and the world building and the poetry of the whole thing. She yeah. lives alone. She has yeah. no one to blame but herself. And nevertheless, she's out of right. toilet paper. We learned a little something about Jessica in that moment. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And she's a hardcore alcoholic. Like, this is not, you know, treated as like, oh, she's edgy because she drinks scotch. I mean, she is a hardcore alcoholic. She's self-medicated. She has to have it to function. Yeah. And the thing is that, like, there's this this idea of the, you know, the woman who gets drunk in parties and she's wild, you know, and that that's kind of what we go for a lot when we have women who drink, you know, in, in these shows. But this is it is about medication. It is about trauma. You know, it is about her just being able to get through the day. She doesn't drink to get drunk. She drinks to get through the damn yeah. day. And that speaks so much to this pain that she's in and a lot of it we don't know you know exactly what happened to her we we learn gradually as we move through the series in the first couple of episodes we start to get a stronger idea of what happened to her you know but we don't know what her trauma is we don't know what happened to her but you can see you know the fallout from it you know and it's i think really really nicely done she's also very self-aware about the fact that she's not drinking for fun. She's drinking oh, yeah. to medicate herself. She makes yeah. no apologies, mm-hmm. but also is not pretending that that isn't the case. She doesn't pretend to Luke, you know, no. when she runs into him. She even uses it as an excuse to not talk to him more. You know, right. she's not mm-hmm. apologizing for it with Trish. And yep. This is her life. I mean, she's certainly not broadcasting it to her clients, 
but at the same time, she takes the, not a flask, mind you, but a full bore water bottle full of booze on <laughs> yes. her job. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, she's she seriously needs this just to get through. And that speaks so beautifully to her pain, to her trauma, to everything that she's going through um, in a way that also works really well within this like edgy noir aesthetic. You know, it's just I think it's beautifully done. I really like her. I like the way she's characterized. I like the way she talks. You know, I like the way she interacts with people when she goes to see Jerry, you know, yeah. and Jerry with a last name like Hogarth. I'm like, Hogarth just sounds like a villain. I had never you know? thought that until I saw your notes, especially because yeah. I've known Jaron Hogarth as a oh, sure rock solid dude for, you know, my entire comic book reading life. But then I was like, damn, you're right. That's <laughs> right. That is a villain name. I mean, Kilgrave also clearly a villain name. Nobody has a name like Kilgrave. <laughs> we'll hang a lampshade on that later, but yes, we that is that. obviously we a bad man, that. you know. Um, but Hogarth seems like, and I really, but I like the two of them. You know, I like that um, Jerry is also like this tough woman. You know, she's in. You know, she's a lawyer. She's running the show. She's sleeping with her secretary. She is ever. Every, you know, privileged male cliche. Yeah. <laughs> as a woman, you know, um, and proving that a woman can be every bit as shitty as a man. So, all right, go Jerry. I like that they they gender flip that character. I know I do too. It was a really good choice, and it's especially a good choice. This is a thing we'll we'll talk more about because we will get to know Jerry very well over the next two seasons. Yeah. But I, there is a part of me that thinks that she is also very self awarely choosing to be a shitty white man who happens to be a woman to yes. show that mm -hmm. she can. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. a choice. You know, now it yeah. leads to her being awful, but she's fine right. with it. Right. And that's okay. And she's not like wringing her hands over it, you know? So I actually, I really enjoy Jerry. She also can go toe to toe with Jessica. We had to have that nice. person, and right? Right, yeah. exactly. Like if she if Jessica could push this one around, we wouldn't have any respect for her, you know. Um, but she's she's really tough. You know, she handles herself with Jessica. She has no interest in taking on, you know, Hope's case uh -huh. until Jessica says, I'll, I'll owe you a favor, you know. Um, and Jessica coming to her, you know, wanting a case to, to do where she has to like serve the um the strip uh, club the owner papers to the guy right so yeah, exactly just for money she's like i can do the things that nobody else can do and you know that's true and she's like yep here you go yeah <laughs> you know? so they have a nice kind of relationship and i i kind of like the way that they they work together i think that they understand each other um in in some very specific ways but they don't do this woman bonding tell me your troubles thing you know neither one of them is that kind of girl they are also not immediately sort of catty and in competition with one another yes this is a completely yes. normal human interaction here with no bullshit tropes about women put in yeah it's really nice it's really nice um one of the things also that i really loved in this episode um i love when uh bob and barbara schlotman Right. Uh -huh. Show up. And while Barbara is explaining that Hope is missing and she's their daughter and, you know, she used to run and track and all this kind of stuff and talking to Jessica, Bob is in the back trying to fix her goddamn door. Uh, this is actually part of my door metaphor. Yes. Do you want to okay, so talk about the door metaphor now? Oh, go for okay. it. Go for it. Because I love the door. Yeah. Okay. So 
I, since the first time that I saw this, I have had this theory, and we will revisit it often. And okay. this is jumping ahead a little bit, because I'm going to go ahead and talk about Trish and her door, which is more in the next okay. episode. Okay. Okay. So Jessica's door, the door to her apartment slash business is literally a metaphor for her life. Fight me. Yes. Okay. So yes. the first time that we are introduced to it, it is way down the hall, all by itself, in that kind uh-huh. of like extreme shot where we can see that there are other doors, but we also yes. clearly don't give a shit about them. Right? Right. This is a show mm-hmm. about Jessica. Mm-hmm. We see that it's beautiful. Like this is a this is actually a classic pebbled glass with a stenciled name on yes. the glass, like mm-hmm. Noir. Mm-hmm. This is how you were introduced to Sam Spade in uh, right. in the Maltese Falcon. Like this this mm-hmm. is a thing that we are doing. Right. So hey, look, mm-hmm. we know she's a detective and a hard boiled one because look, it says investigations yes. and look pebbled glass. Okay, that's a, right. all a real thing. Mm-hmm. She then breaks it with yes. the head of a client. Yes. Yes. To prove a point with Mm -hmm. useless violence. Wow. She solves a problem with useless violence that creates a bigger problem for herself. Right. Hi, I'm Jessica Jones. Mm -hmm. Now, so I feel really strongly about that. Like that introduction, we learn so much about not just Jessica, but the show in that moment. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Then there's Bob. Bob's a man. Bob's a dad. Bob is there with a very serious issue. And he is in the background trying to fix Jessica's door. I might ask without being asked or consulted. Exactly. Bob is, you may note, a pretty prototypical white man dad at that point, right? Uh, Yeah. Well, he's very much a dad. And I kind of actually really love that while at the same time leaving his wife to deal with the hard emotional labor you know of like talking about their missing daughter right? with this detective not being at her side oh at we learn time, about bob in that moment also yes oh yeah no you learn everything about both bob and barbara and um and at the same time i love that here we have this person who uh, Bob and Barbara clearly don't belong there. You know, we find out later they were sent there, you know? Yeah. Um, clearly, these are not the kind of people that go to somebody like Jessica Jones. They're not part of the noir world. They don't belong in that space. That's not where they live. They live in Omaha, it's, right? You yes, know, with, yeah. uh, with a two and a half acres of land and a five bedroom house. Like, that's the kind of people that these are. And here they are in this place where they don't belong. And he's trying to fix the, the space that they went through. <laughs> to get there which is broken yeah also trying to take care of jessica because she's a young girl not that you know much older probably than his daughter you know and he's trying to take care of her and fix what he can fix when he is you know helpless to fix the problem they came there for which is finding his daughter you know um so i kind of love all of that and then there's that moment where barbara's like stop with the damn door bob you know we are here except that we are here. This is where we are, you know, and he's still dealing with the entrance that brought him into uh-huh. this space, you know? Yep. Um, so I love that whole thing, but I also really love that he's trying to fix it. Barbara is completely fed up and like had enough with him. And then he's like, well, do you have any epoxy or whatever? Right. And she pulls out Elmer's glue and goes and hands it to him. Right. Which just shows how much Jessica has no understanding 
of what he's doing at all. She has no understanding of what it is to have somebody care for her. And when somebody tries to care for her, she can't even give them like the fact that she would even look at Elmer's glue and think this is possibly what he needs. Okay. You know? I like where your head's at. I'm going to push back a little bit. Yeah. Because again, I have been thinking about this metaphor a lot. Sure. But yeah. one thing is that's after Barbara gets angry and like yeah. raises her voice at him and he is standing there not sure what to do. Jessica takes that glue to him. I think knowing full well it's not what he needs, she's throwing mm-hmm. him a lifeline and that's that tarnished heart of gold stuff. Oh, but in the larger yeah, metaphor, sweet. Jessica does not have the tools to fix herself. Yes. She sure as mm-hmm. hell doesn't have the tools for some random dad to fix her. Exactly. Well, Jessica's exactly. life. Right. But she responds to it. Like, I, I like the fact that she responds to him trying to fix her door and trying to do something for her. Um, it was it was really like for a very short scene that includes these characters that we're not, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with that are not actually that important. Um, it was such a beautiful scene, yes. the way that it was written, the way that it moved through these spaces of conflict, these lines of conflict between all of them. You know, um, it was lovely. I, I really loved that scene. I, I agree 100%. And I feel like that's the scene that made me go back and start thinking about mm-hmm. her door as a whole, and like going forward, because we'll yeah. jump a little ahead in time and talk about Trish. This may not, if yes. you guys are watching this along with us, this may not make sense until we talk more about Trish, but Trish yeah. also tries to fix Jessica's door. Yes. She does mm-hmm. it by sending someone who isn't her. Yeah. Trish tries to fix things with money. Mm-hmm. Trish is not sure how to fix things with time. <laughs> not really, but she knows how to fix things with money. And mm-hmm. what's more, she tries to fix Jessica's door by making it an idealized version of itself. Who's ideal? Yes. Trish's mm-hmm. ideal. Right. <laughs> okay, look, she loves Jessica. I'm just saying she is in a way that Bob isn't. Bob is avoiding the problem. Trish is actually trying to help. But looking at how Trish tries to fix Jessica's door is also mm-hmm. how Trish tries to fix Jessica's life. And we can yeah. see in those moments why that shit don't work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Trish is, we don't, we don't actually spend a lot of time with Trish in this episode until Jessica goes to her for the money to get to Hong Kong so she can get out of town when she discovers that Kilgrave is back, right? But isn't it interesting that she's a looming presence in all of these ads that we don't yes, understand why Jessica's everywhere. mad about it? <laughs> yeah, she's everywhere, but she's not present. Yes! You know? And I mean, that's the thing with Trish, too, is that Trish is very much, um, she has this barrier around her that is you know her money like she genuinely loves jessica but she's got her money and she's got her success you know and she's got everything and everything for her is done a certain way Mm -hmm. there's a way that things are done for her in her world and she like bob doesn't live in the same world that jessica does you know, even as being that close to Jessica, she doesn't live in that world. That's not her existence. You know, that's not how her world works. We will come to discover that she also lives in a very noir space, but it is a very mm-hmm. different noir space than Jessica's. It is. Yeah, yeah. It is. No, it's really interesting. So Trish will be, we'll talk about Trish, I think, a little bit more in the next episode. Um, let's go ahead and visit a little bit with Luke Cage. Let's do that. 
<laughs> we don't name him. I don't think we name him. I we know who he is because he has his own show, right? So I mean the the um the bartender at the dive bar that Jessica sleeps with, that's Luke. Well I think he right? introduces himself as Luke, but that's as far as we go. Does yeah. he? Yeah, I don't I don't know if we really get a big sense of, of him. Um but I love I love him. I love the way he deals with her. I love the two of them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we get that, you know, in the next episode, when we see that he is unbreakable, mm-hmm. you know, that he is also gifted, that makes it even better and more interesting to me. But even in just this first episode, everything that he is and, and without having, you know, other deeper things revealed, um, I think he's really great. And we see that she is watching him. She tells the story that like the husband of the married woman that he's sleeping with, you know, hired her and all that kind of stuff, which is not true. Um, you know, she's following up on him uh, for reasons that in the first episode, we don't know yeah, yet yeah. why she's she's stalking him and, and watching him. Um, but when she goes, you know, after they've slept together, she goes in into his um, medicine cabinet and opens it up. And there's a picture of this woman there. You know, and then she leaves. It's interesting how that how that unfolds, you know, throughout these two episodes. Yeah, we're going to discover some stuff there, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. It's pretty good stuff. I have to say, I think that we're almost ready to dive into our second episode today. But first, I know it's hard. They actually blend together really strongly. So it's hard to not do. do that. Yeah. They do. Keeping them separate is a little bit harder, I think, in this series. All right, so moving from Trish to Luke, we can also talk a little bit about Hope, uh, who is really interesting because it seems like Hope, this missing girl from Omaha, feels very much and reads very much like a case of the week. It's a thing we're going to do in this episode, and it's not going to matter past this episode. It's not going to be a thing. Um, But Hope is actually the way in which we access um, Jessica's history. Right. Instead of having like using the voiceover, which is the worst use of voiceover to exposit everything and explain everything. Kilgrave was this man and he did this thing and he mind controlled, blah, blah, blah. Instead of any of that, we use hope. And when we there's a connection between hope and Kilgrave um, and she starts and Jessica starts to put that together. We realize that this girl is in serious trouble and also deeply connected, not just a case of the week, but deeply connected to Jessica. And then when you go in to the hotel and she pulls her out screaming because he told her not to move, you know, and she peed on herself. You know, she says she went to the bathroom in the bed, you know, because he told her not to move and she can't, you know, that is so incredibly powerful. And without going into huge expository nonsense, we're telling this story in a way that is giving us enough of Jessica's backstory that we can see that at one point that was her. That was her yes, experience. Yeah. It's beautiful. That's a thing that we find out about Jessica silently because yes. her reaction to Hope is nonplussed and understanding, but also no nonsense. Like she's not yes. shocked by this on mm-hmm. any level. She's been there. Mm-hmm. She gets it. Yeah. But she's also not going to take any shit about it. Like, we're leaving. I understand that's hard for you, but you also can't stop me, you know. Right. Um, Which, I mean, is kind of an interesting twin to Kilgrave. Like, she is, I don't know, it's interesting. Like, Hope's agency is completely Kilgrave's in that moment. And -hmm. the fact that Jessica is like, no, we're getting out of here. And it is saving her, but it may not be entirely clear that Jessica is 
I don't know, not also stealing her agency. I don't know. She's stealing Kilgrave's agency through Hope. I don't know. It's a complicated she's, bundle, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, basically, it's very clear that Hope, deep inside, is not okay. You know, yeah. like she's not okay with the situation, but she also doesn't have any control. So it's a circumstance where Jessica, because Hope doesn't have control, I mean, dragging a woman out of a hotel room against her consent is not okay. In this very specific instance, she was imprisoned there. Yes, the visual you know, is really and, rough. And the only way to rescue her is to pull her out. Yeah. And it was really like, I, I, and I, I watched it, but I wasn't really sure what happened. Maybe you can clear this up for me. Hope is screaming and yelling and pulling on things and then she hits her head and she gets knocked out did jessica deliberately knock her out on the wall or did she just hit her head and it just sort of happened i think that it's a little unclear and my personal head canon is that jessica did it on purpose like this is a problem she's gonna hurt herself or i'm gonna hurt her right um i'm not you know so i think i think jessica let that happen in hopes that it would it was done so casually yeah. that I was like, was that an accident? That's or why I think it's Jessica on purpose because it's so it may, casual, you know. It may well Boom. be. Right, exactly. And she doesn't even react to it. Exactly. Hope she's, gets again, knocked out and she doesn't she's not surprised. Not surprised. At all, so guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think I think you're right. The the reading of like the how viscerally kind of awful this scene is, even though we in our mm. heart know that it's Jessica doing the right thing, immediately goes into Hope saying he made me do things I didn't want to do, but I also kind of right. wanted to do them. Yeah, And it's like, oh, this is... Whew. Which is so terrible. It's worse you know? than mind I mean, control. It's worse than somebody else just taking over and driving you. Right. No, it's it's absolutely terrible and horrifying. And this is you know, psychological horror on a really, really deep level when you don't even have control over yourself, you know? And then we have, you know, that horrible, just gut-wrenching ending where, you know, Jessica sends Hope with her parents and they're in the elevator and just as the door is closing, Hope takes out the gun while Jessica can see her. Mm -hmm. So like some of it is Hope and some of it is not Hope. And I think the part that was Hope did it hoping that Jessica would stop her. Yes. Asking Jessica to stop her. And Jessica's unable to stop her. And that long hallway, we open with that hallway being so fucking long. Mm -hmm. It's interminable, you know? And then we get that same shot at the end from the apartment to the elevator. And it's so, it's impossible. It's so long, it's impossible. And then to see that happening and know that there's no way to stop it, knowing what's going to happen and no way to stop it is so horrifying. And we don't see them get shot. The door closes and we hear the gunshots, which is also such an incredibly effective way, you know, to shoot that scene. Um, God, it was it was wonderfully done and so terrible. <laughs> But terrible in a good way, you know? Yeah. And when there's there's a couple of Jessica things there, too, right? Like um, the reason she's not in the elevator to stop that is because she went back mm -hmm. for her stuff because she is still running. Yes. So her one selfish choice right. resulted in the death of the Schlotmans as she sees right. it. That's definitely she how she sees it. She doesn't get to think of herself at all. Yeah. Like this is the thing, you know, she's she wants to leave because Kilgrave being back is very, very bad for her. And then she doesn't, you know, she's in the cab and then she doesn't do it, you know? Um, and it's, it's so hard 
because, you know, she takes one moment, one moment for herself. And then, you know, and this is what happens. This is the result. And so the last thing she hears upstairs is the gunshots. Mm -hmm. And the next thing she hears downstairs is the click because Hope is still just pulling, pulling, pulling the trigger. It's, Yeah. yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. No, it's so terrifying. I mean, it really is like one of the most horrifying things. And especially because you look at that and you're like, that's, you know, that's what Jessica was. That's what just that's what happened to her in some form or another. You know that that's what he did to Mm -hmm. her, you know, and that's really, really horrifying. And to end on that note, I mean, God, that's so hard. That's so hard. But before we get into the next episode, we're going to take a little break and have a word from our sponsors. So you got a case that needs solving with a female PI who can throw a grown man across a room and has literally no more fucks to give. You came to the right place. Alias Investigations. No, we don't have a goddamn dot com or a special code for a discount. Your discount code is, you come see us, maybe we solve your problem, maybe we kick your ass. How's that for a discount code? Jesus Christ, where's my goddamn scotch? All right, look, you find my office in the real physical world like a goddamn normal goddamn person and tell me your problem to my face. If I can find it within myself to care about one of two things, either your problem or your money, I might take your case. But honestly, I wouldn't count on it. I got enough fucking problems of my own, you know what I mean? So, okay, I'll solve your problem for you for free, nice and quick. How about you quit worrying about that cheating piece of shit? And yes, he's cheating. Of course he's cheating. You know he's cheating. That's why you came to me. Pack up, move out, and listen to some podcasts. Like this one, Listen Up A-Holes, about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You could even take some of that money you would have wasted hiring me to tell you what you already fucking know and give it to Chipperish Media, where they do smart, insightful podcasts about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel the Series, and Star Wars. They've got some kind of inspirational shit called Orgasm, and there's even a new one out covering the Good Omens series starring this British guy who creeps me the fuck out, but whatever, you do you. There's also a great podcast for writers and people who love stories. It's called How Story Works. It's hosted by some kind of, I don't know, story expert or something. And it'll teach you what you need to know. Go to patreon.com slash chipperish and put your money where it can actually do some good, you know? Now get the hell out of my office. All right. So Jessica Jones is a fan of chipperish media. I like that. Yeah, unexpected, what with our usually happy (laughs) attitude, but we're saying nice things about her, so it's not, you know, completely out of the blue, I guess. (laughs) Not completely, but next on our list of things to talk about is Season 1, Episode 2, a.k.a. Crush Syndrome. In a.k.a. Crush Syndrome, Jessica is interrogated by the police who want to know what happened with Hope and her parents. They show Jessica pictures from her files, and when she goes to see Luke, the police have already been there, and he's pissed. She says he was a job. The woman he's sleeping with is married, and her husband hired her. He tells her to leave. Jessica goes to the police station to visit Hope, and they talk about Kilgrave. Hope says that Kilgrave is doing this to torment Jessica. Jessica goes to Jerry and asks her to represent Hope. Jerry is not into it, but Jessica promises her a favor, and that's definitely worth something. Jessica talks to Trish about her plan to find Kilgrave and prove that he can control people's minds. Trish wants to help, but Jessica says that he's too dangerous. If Kilgrave is out to hurt her, going through Trish is a great way to do it. After Trish leaves, Jessica pulls out all her evidence about Kilgrave, and it includes newspaper clippings about a bus crash that killed a woman. 
the woman in the picture in Luke's medicine cabinet. And Luke is in her pictures, standing by a gravesite. She flashes back to walking away from Kilgrave on the street, and that's when the bus hit him and tipped over. Jessica visits the hospital where the victims of the bus crash would have gone. She breaks into a locker, gets some scrubs and an ID, and gets into the hospital records for a bus crash and finds out that Kilgrave was not brought into the hospital. Back at home, Jessica finds a man in her apartment and hurts him before discovering that Trish sent him to fix her broken door. Jessica finds Jack, the ambulance driver from the night of the crash. He ran off with an ambulance and then donated both of his kidneys and had a stroke. And he survives hooked up to a machine that cleans his blood. He's living with his crazy mother who sees his return to her as God answering her prayers. Jessica promises to find Kilgrave, but Jack writes on paper asking Jessica to kill him. Jessica says she can't and runs off. Luke's married girlfriend shows up at Jessica's place and tells her that her husband and his rugby buddies are headed to Luke's bar to beat him up. Jessica rushes over there and joins in the fray, but Luke doesn't really need any help. He's able to take on all the guys without much apparent effort. When the husband takes a broken bottle and it glances off of Luke's neck without so much as a scratch, it's clear that Jessica is not the only gifted individual in New York. Jessica tracks down Dr. Carrada, the Dr. Kilgrave forced to remove Jack's kidneys when his failed as a result of the bus crash. He says that Kilgrave refused regular anesthesia because it kills his powers. Jessica calls Jerry and has Carrada tell the story of mind control, and Jerry agrees to take Hope's case. Jessica calls Trish to thank her for the new glass for her door. Trish says she's doing yoga, but she's really training in self-defense and training hard enough to leave bruises all over her body. Kilgrave takes over an apartment with a family in it, putting the children in the closet and forcing the parents to feed him. Back at Jessica's, Luke shows up and says he knows what she is, and she knows what he is. To prove it, he takes a power saw and presses it against his stomach. Not a scratch. He's unbreakable. AKA Crush Syndrome was written by Melissa Rosenberg and Micah Schraft and directed by S.J. Clarkson. All right, Joshua. So here we are in the second episode. I'm this run is really good. These episodes are so good and so engrossing. Like you know, usually when I do my notes, you know, I'm focused on the notes and I'm like, okay. And it's you know, I mean, it's always fun getting to talk about this stuff. But you know, prepping for it is a grind. Um, you know, in this moment watching Jessica Jones, I was so engaged in it that I realized I'd watched the whole episode and hadn't taken any notes. <laughs> so I had to go back and add them in later. Well. That's also, we've mentioned this a little bit. That's not that surprising because the two episodes really do blend well together and mirror together. They yes. really are like the opening act of this story together. Yeah. I and mean, we had to jump around ourselves because it's impossible to talk about the introduction of some of these characters without talking about how it pays off almost right away, but in a second episode. Exactly, exactly. So some of the things that I found really interesting, and this I think refers to like, you know, the whole thing kind of in general together, you know, um, is is the way that we slowly reveal how dark everything is. I mean, we open up with Jessica, like in the first episode, right? And she's clearly dark. She throws her own client through her window and <laughs> her, her door. Um, she's, you know, drunk. Um, she's actually not drunk. She drinks. Um, she is an alcoholic that needs that in order to function. Yeah, normally, I think she's a know? walking drunk. I think she's a walking. Yeah, drunk. Yeah, like she's drunk all the time. But that's how yes. she operates. So it's difficult. But that's to the tell. only way she can function. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So um, so she's she's in that dark space and we've got this noir aesthetic. And so we know everything's going to be dark. But how dark it gets 
um, is something that is slowly revealed mm-hmm. with these peels of, you know, of like light that just go fall away and it just gets darker and darker and darker as we walk through you know, her whole experience in these episodes, um, including these flashbacks, these flashes that she has to Kilgrave um, in the moment, like when she's, you know, she's on the subway and she has a flash of him, you know, he, he talks in her ear and she slams her elbow into the um, window behind her and cracks it, which is a subway window. It's pretty hard to do that. <laughs> you know, um, we see, like just how incredibly powerful and traumatic that is when we see this this woman who can beat the shit out of anybody you know it's like really incredibly tough you know and she keeps having these panic attacks that she has to recite all the names of the um of the streets you know where where she grew up right um it's it's so incredibly well done and well expressed and then we get to this mind control and we see what happens to hope you Mm -hmm. know and of course the fact that she's named hope also i mean this is the destruction of hope like we needed this to be darker it is the destruction of hope but it's also a tease to jessica hope is jessica's hope that she can save someone who is in the same place that she was when no one was around to save her Right. And I mean, that's a big thing of noir, right? Is like you, you can't save yourself. Like, you know, the, the person, the hero of the noir is already, you know, hip deep in corruption Mm -hmm. or whatever it is in darkness. They can't get out, but they might be able to save somebody else. And so that's why they do what they do. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah. And much like brick, there's not much chance of coming out clean. That's not how it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. You're I, never going to get out, but you might be able to get somebody else. That's out. not much of a spoiler. We won't talk about how it doesn't work out. But I mean, if you thought that this was a show where hope was going to actually be found literally and figuratively, I have bad news for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're you're definitely reading this wrong. I think it's <laughs> your expectation at this point. Um, but, you know, then we go into we have this, you know, she goes and sees this uh, the guy, the guy who had his kidneys taken out. And he's, you know, then he had a stroke and he's living with this crazy mother and he's on dialysis like 24 seven because he has no kidneys, you know, so awful. Yeah, it's so dark. And then he starts writing kill and you're like, oh, and she goes, oh, I know. Kill grave. Right. And he, he's like, no, I'm not done. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just kill me. And that despair, that darkness as she starts you know, to leave. And she says, I'm sorry, I can't. And this horrible mother who says, God brought him back to me, that this is God's work. You know, that it doesn't matter that he suffers. The fact is I have my son back. Oh my God. It's all of that is so, so dark. And then we find that, you know, um, doctor who's teaching, right? And knows who she is because Kilgrave is obsessed with her. So brings it back to her, you know? Um, And then he confesses to her what he did and, you know, without like really having control over it, you know, I mean, they're in this basement that is dark, everything. It feels like you just keep going lower as she's, as they're, she's chasing him down the stairs into the basement. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Like it's getting darker and darker and darker. Where will we find our scraps of truth? We will find it in the dark. We will find it in the underworld. It's not going to be brought out into the light, friends. Oh, my God. It's just it's so incredibly dark. And like at the end of the first episode, Hope shoots her parents. 
that's pretty dark. Then we go through this and it's like, holy shit, people. Like this is. <laughs> oh, really? This is seriously difficult material. Yeah, they're like, oh, oh, did you think that was dark? Come with us. Let us show you. <laughs> Let me walk you through this fraternity haunted house. If you want dark, that's where you'll find it. Um, yeah, it's just it's so incredibly powerful. So what did you think about all of that? Well, I really like how there is no giant info dump about Jessica's backstory, right? Yes. She does not mm -hmm. have, she's, okay, like here's a, it may or may not be a controversial statement. It doesn't matter that Jessica lives in a superhero universe. She's not a superhero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Therefore, she does not have an origin story. She has mm -hmm. some traumatic shit that made her into the person mm -hmm. that she is. And it's not a horrible person, but it's not heroic either. I mean, and that's going yeah. to be a conversation with Trish too. So the yeah. idea that she's had some real darkness happen in, in her life, like that's not undeniable, but that she is mm -hmm. confronted with th a darkness in Kilgrave that horrifies her even knowing what she knows. Yeah. Is even more of that, uh, that like just slow build of just how bad this is going to be. Like we knew how bad it was looking at Jessica, but then we have her panic right. attacks and then we have her understanding hope so well. And then we watch her recoil in horror from parts of Kilgrave's story when she thought it couldn't get any worse. These are all yeah. silent messages to us that things are very bad and it works so well. It gets all of that across without burdening us with this big, long, expositional, you know, info dumpy story, right? Yes. It's absolutely keeping things moving. This is beautifully, beautifully done. Um, and I, I love the way that they're doing it. Um, you know, we also get into this this surprise with Luke, mm -hmm. right? You know, that we find out that he is also, you know, a super hero and at the time that this came out if you hadn't you know been like you knew who luke was you knew that he was one of the gifteds when you first watched this me did you pick up he was luke Cage? oh yeah yeah so you know oh, yeah but like without having that background like i had no idea so when it turns out that he is also gifted you know Huge there's surprise. also something special about him like that was a big turn you know for me watching it um and i find it it opens up this space for this discussion of like the burden of being special right because we have this thing where jessica you know she she wants to run to hong kong but she doesn't she goes and she saves hope and she wants to do you know she wants to get out and she wants to like not help people but she can't help herself she does you yes. know, she can't stop herself right um and so there is kind of this burden of being special oh, you know yeah. i mean she's gifted in this way that is incredibly powerful that she can beat the hell out of people she can do the things for jerry that other people can't do you know, that she has the ability to save people that maybe other people couldn't save, you know. Um, and also she's special in that Kilgrave wants her. She's not just another victim to him. Like everything that he's doing is about her and about getting her attention, about bringing her back in, you know, into his fold under his power, you know. So she's special in like all of these ways. But there is this burden of being special. Mm -hmm. You know, the burden of it is that Kilgrave is never going to let her go. The burden of it is that no matter what, she cannot ignore that if she has the power to help somebody, she has to do it. Yeah, I, I was looking at that as um, it's interesting. We say we say gifted 
right? Uh, mm-hmm. Is a thing that has been used in the MCU until they get to, you know, things like enhanced or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But she's gifted. Right. So her powers are a gift, but Kilgrave's fascination with them also makes them a curse. Right. Like it, it is a monkey's paw situation. And mm-hmm. I think that leaves us in a place where we can really understand that that Luke is not even doing the bare minimum heroic things that Jessica is doing. Like, right. I don't know, Jessica's not doing know. heroic things. She's doing good yeah. things, right? Luke's mm-hmm. not even doing that. Right. He's just like, I just want to be left alone. Yeah. And we'll see why. Yeah. And we'll also see that change. But boy, will that be a long wait. It does not happen in this show exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but for the moment, it's really interesting. No, the contrast is so strong between the two of them. The contrast is really interesting. And also because Luke, you know, seems to be more balanced. Like, he's got his shit together. It's true. It's true. His his traumas are different. Boy, I'm I'm just not going to say another word about that. Yes, he currently seems more balanced. Because we don't want to spoil anything. (laughs) But... But even just what we see in these two episodes, like, you know, he's running his bar. He's got his shit together. He didn't realize this woman was married. You know, he realizes that she is and he breaks it off. You know, he's not interested in that anymore. Like, um, he is very um, sure of himself. Like, he doesn't seem to be struggling the way that Jessica is struggling just to get through the fucking day. You know, like he's got it together. He's handling his shit, you know, but he's also not doing, cause I mean, if he was out saving other people, we don't know that he's not, except that if he was out saving other people, Jessica would not be so surprised. Mm-hmm. She would have known already that he was super powered, you know? So clearly he's not doing that because she's been stalking him and this is a surprise to her, you know? So, um, so it's, it's interesting also because, Jessica in her specialness is very isolated. You know, she separates herself from everybody. She's not connected. She's got, you know, Malcolm in her in her house, but she's not, you know, building a relationship with him as a neighbor. Um, she's got the really weird, creepy brother and sister upstairs. She's not connecting with them. You know, she only engages with people as they annoy her and she has no other choice. Otherwise, she isolates herself. She isolates herself from Trish. You know, mm-hmm. um, she isolates herself from everybody and everything because it's too, you know, she says people are a distraction, you know, um, but I think it's it's more than that. But it's interesting how her specialness is part of what makes her separate, that she can't be completely connected with other people um, because she has this responsibility to fix their shit, you know. And then the one person who tries to fix her shit can't even do it. Yeah, I Bob think that's I think that's the trick, right? She she actually is actively avoiding trying to fix people's problems. Right. Discovering that the the person you thought is cheating is actually cheating it does not yeah. really solve a problem. It just confirms you have one, you know. Right. And so you actually I don't know, it's it's really interesting. She can't help but get mixed up in things. That's Jessica's deal, you know. Right. Um, there's an ama- another noir uh novel, there's an amazing line from Devil in a Blue Dress, uh by Walter Mosley, mm-hmm. um, where s- someone says to the main character, You walk out the front door, you're already mixed up in something. And I think that's Jessica. Yeah. And I think the twin mm-hmm. of that is Luke, who says, Then I'm not walking out my front door. Right. I'm just not doing it. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. avoiding his problems, but yeah, actively and avoiding. everybody else's problems. Too. Exactly. I mean, he's running his bar. Yeah. He's engaged with people. He's got community. You yeah. know, I mean, he's got this woman that he's sleeping with. Like, you know, he's engaging with people, but he's not taking on that responsibility. Very surface. And, you know, yeah. 
And it always comes back to this thing, right? This classic Spider-Man line, which is at the heart, I think, of every superhero story is with great power comes great responsibility. If you are given these gifts and you don't use them to help people, then, you know, I mean, in, in the superhero moral universe, in action as a superhero is is like a negative moral choice, isn't it? A lot of the time, yes. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think you see that in Spider-Man, as you say, like most clearly. Uh, but but yes. that really, you know, you see it in Captain America. Also, once he becomes powered, it's like, what is he supposed to do? Retire? Come on, you know. Right, yeah. What gets interesting in the 616 is that you also have in mutants, for instance, a whole slew uh-huh. of people who are powered and did not ask for it. And they are actually sort of part of a larger group and they want to be able to choose not to have to. We, I didn't ask for this. You know, it's not mm-hmm. I'm an accident of birth, not even an accident right. out in the world. I don't want this thing. And so there have been some really great, especially X-Men stories that take a look at that. What is your moral obligation? Mm-hmm. with these powers and because the X-Men tend to be a civil rights allegory a lot of the time yes. some mm-hmm. of that question comes into like what is your responsibility to your people whatever that means right, right? and mm-hmm. yeah so generally and, and I think the most of the time it is that like not using your powers is also a moral choice and it's a negative one. Right. You don't get to sit on the bench. Yeah. Like you don't like your choices and your agency are essentially stripped from you unless you want to be a bad guy. Right. And doing nothing when you have the power to save people. Not saving people you can save is yeah a, a negative moral choice. It's not as negative yes. a moral choice as putting on an outfit and robbing banks and murdering people. Clearly. Right. As deliberately going after it. But I mean, there is a there is a strong sense of moral responsibility mm-hmm. that comes with power. Um, and I find that really interesting because it feels like people should be able if they don't choose to have this power, they're not going after it. It happens to them. They get bit by a fucking spider. Right. You know, Um like they should be able to go on with their lives. They didn't ask for this. This happened to them. They're a victim of this, you know, but suddenly their lives are kind of overtaken by this power, by this thing that they can do. And the responses to that, you know, along the run of various heroes, I find really interesting. Like you look at Tony Stark, he chose, like, I mean, granted, he, you know, the original Iron Man was about saving his own life. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, post that, like, he could have left that machine in the dust and just never gone back to it again. But he kept building it and kept doing it because he wanted that power. And, I mean, Tony is a, is a complicated, oh, you know, this is discussion. A, no, but he's a great example of one place on the spectrum because Tony Stark swallows yeah. the hook. He's like the fish that swallows yeah. the hook and then continues to swallow it every time we see him. Yes. You know, and yes, you know, yeah. So that's but then you you've got your your Captain Americas that were just like, I want to help people and and cannot. Right. So so in that case, it's not foisted on him. He volunteers at every level, you know, mm-hmm. um, all the way towards our Spider-Man example where it was an accident and I tried to use it for my own purposes and it all went terrible. And so now I'm never going to do that again. Right. Right. And then in the middle, you've got somebody like Hulk. Right. <laughs> I would like Where... to not do this, please. But if I've got to do <laughs> yeah, but it. I mean, it, it happened because he was farting around with gamma radiation <laughs> and that shit is serious, man. Ostensibly you know? to um, help people, too. Right. But he made one people. sort of selfish choice. Like 
they're going to take this project away from me. I have to try this thing now. And the one selfish choice spirals wildly out of control. And I mean, I think if we'd ever gotten more Hulk movies, we would actually be talking about the Avengers as a path to salvation for him because they're hitching the Hulk to a reasonable plow at that point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's he has no control over it, though, which I think is is also really interesting is that he is in the absolute worst of all possible worlds, you know, (laughs) didn't choose it, but it's kind of his fault Um, and that has no control over it. So he has this responsibility that he can't even control what he does with it like what happens when he's hulk happens like he doesn't you know have a conscious control over that it's i i think there's such a fascinating like phil- philosophical yes, space yes. that all of these different stories kind of reflect you know on this choice and so you know to bring it back to to jessica jones into this very particular iteration of this you know we have this um kind of these two opposing gifteds and her and Luke Cage and how they choose to engage with that responsibility. It's interesting. It's very interesting. The the mirroring is really, really powerful. And using these two people who are powered but could actually not be more distant from what we normally yeah. consider the MCU, but we use them mm-hmm. as a lens through which to talk about the larger MCU. This is what shared universes are for. Yes. No, absolutely. It's wonderful. And then we've got Trish, right? Oh boy. Trish, who, <laughs> you know, and it was so funny because I've seen this before. <laughs> like, I've seen this show before. And yet, when I saw the bruises on her arms, I was like, oh, is she sick? Mm. You know, something going on here. And then when I saw, then she had the nosebleed. And I was like, I don't remember Trish having like cancer or anything. Like, what is going on? And then she goes in and she's doing this self-defense thing where she, the guy is not being hard enough on her. Yeah. And she is a normal person actively chasing the superpower. She wants to be able to beat people up the way that Jessica does. That is one way to look at it. It also might be that she wants to empower herself so that she's never a victim again. And Uh if that means, and we'll find out how she was a victim as we go, but um, you know, she never wants to be a victim again and she wants to make herself powerful enough to do that. And if along the way that makes her powerful enough to stop other people from being victims, I don't think Trish would shy away from that. No, I mean, I think that she like, and uh, granted, this is informed by where we go in the future. So no spoilers, but I, you know, I definitely see her as chasing that dragon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. First vicariously through Jess. We'll get to it. And then again, Mm -hmm. more so later. It's interesting. You thought she was sick, though, because knowing what I knew about the themes of this show via Kilgrave, I actually thought she had an abusive relationship in her life. Because we didn't know anything about Trish at this point. And let me assure Mm -hmm. you, knowing a bunch about Patsy Walker did not give me a window into Trish Walker. (laughs) At all. So Hellcat from the comics and, uh, and Trish... While they are like related, I mean, this is the character that's supposed to be Hellcat, right? Um, they're not. They're they're different. Let's. Okay. I mean, is it is it a coincidence that they just accidentally name this character for that character? No, not at all. They're doing a thing with her mm-hmm. that if we'd gotten a third season, wow. Uh, let me yeah. tiptoe around spoilers. If we had gotten a third season, we would have gotten a version of Hellcat. I think. 
But, okay. and this is no shade because I really like a lot of Trish's arcs through this show, mm-hmm. but she was never going to be the Hellcat that I liked from the 616 ever. Okay. All right. I don't want to say never, but they would have had a very difficult time bridging that gap. They are mm-hmm. almost two completely different characters that happen to share a couple of background items. Yeah. Okay. All Patsy right. Walker is 0% viewpoint into Trish Walker. Okay. (laughs) And so I didn't know what they were going to do with her at all. Mm -hmm. And when they're like, you might want to cover up and it's her, uh, you know, her assistants who clearly like have her back. You know, I was like, oh no, Trish has an abuser because I knew that that's what the theme of the show was, right? you know, Mm -hmm. but then yeah, turning her into a person who was seeking that, that kind of power to no longer be a victim. I was like, that also makes sense. You know. Yeah, and I like that turn, too, because it wasn't expected, but yet they didn't lie to us. Yes, yeah. In fact, yeah. it's thematically appropriate with everything we've seen about mm-hmm. her, because let's talk about how she's getting that power. Uh, she is using her money, yes. and she is doing it behind multiple closed and locked doors. Yeah. That's Trish top to bottom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I really, I like that. And it, it's really interesting, too, to have that going on in the background with her, while we've got these characters who um, who haven't necessarily chosen. I mean, we don't really know at this point how Luke got his powers or how, you know, Jessica got hers. Um, but, you know, it would seem not to be a choice for either mm-hmm, of them. Mm-hmm. That just this is something that probably most of the time, I mean, I think it's something that happens to people rather than something that they chase. But for Trish to be chasing that while we're still kind of dealing with uh, Jessica's, you know, kind of um, not wanting to do it necessarily, but feeling obligated. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jessica's like struggle with that obligation and Luke's complete like disinterest in that moral obligation. I don't think he's interested in that question at all. Not not at this stage in his story. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. It also tells us another something about at least this part of the MCU, but probably not the mm-hmm. MCU as a whole. But I recently had a friend of mine say something that I, I thought was really interesting. He was like, in Gotham City, deciding to mm-hmm. be a superhero should be kind of weird, but not insane. Yeah. <laughs> it should be the same kind of level of, I'm going to be the best cellist, you know, right. or something. It's like, wow, okay, weird flex, but I get it. I get it. <laughs> that how That's how it has to be, right? In, in mm-hmm. superhero universes as a whole. But in this corner of a superhero universe it's got to look like it's not a good life choice you know like that's Mm -hmm. why jess and luke are avoiding it and that trish is a little off kilter running after it yeah yeah no i mean it's it's very cool um i also really love the bar fight Right. Jessica hears that these rugby guys are going by to beat up Luke. And she feels, of course, terrible and responsible because she is, of course, terrible and responsible. (laughs) And she runs there, gets there. This whole thing starts to explode. She's fighting these guys and she, you know, she's pretty kick ass and she has to put some effort into it. Meanwhile, you look over at Luke and he basically flicks his pinky at a guy and he falls down. I mean, it is I loved 
that and I, I don't particularly you know me I don't care for these fight scenes I don't care for these action sequences I've seen people get punched in the face enough I get it <laughs> you know um, but this the revelation in that moment is Jessica's watching him and he's basically like flicking his hand I mean it's like the, the air from his hand going by this guy just knocks him down oh yeah it's ca- it's so it's casual so he slaps one guy yeah. in the back of the head yeah. and that dude does not get up you know, yeah, and everybody jumps on him, and he just stands back up. I mean, and he seems actually fairly gentle about it. Like it looks to me, like this is him when he's really trying not to hurt somebody. Yeah, I would like he them all to be unconscious of so they stop messing up my bar. But if I break exactly, one bone, he's like flicking a fly yeah. off his shoulder. Yeah. Like you can tell that he is holding back way more power than that. And you and, know? and he's yeah. bored. By the fact yes. that a man tried to murder him with a broken bottle. No, when the bottle just glances off of his neck like nothing, I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Okay, I'm going to dig a little deeper in there because it's like a knife would glance off. This dude clearly knows how to hurt somebody with a broken bottle because he stabs yeah. and grinds. Because, yeah. because a broken bottle is not a great hand-to-hand weapon. It's better than nothing. Okay, don't get me wrong. Right. But... Right. You have to make use of what you have, which is get bits of glass in there. He was going to kill Luke. Luke would have died yeah. If, yeah. if not A for unbreakable skin. A normal person would have died. Man. It's, and Luke just like shrugs like, oh, you fr-. a bunch of people saw that, you ass. You know, so good. <laughs> Luke does not. I mean, talk about not having any fucks to give. I know I use that to describe Jessica, but I think that actually Luke is a, is a better. They have like, run out of fucks in really very different flavors. Care. And in different ways. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to point out again, I think I've cracked the code of Lonnie, Diane Rich and action sequences because when they actually tell a story or reveal something for your story, you love them. I, yes, no, I do. I loved that one scene in Daredevil that they shot. The the hallway. It was just the hallway. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, part of it is, you know, one, I've seen this a thousand times. I really don't care. Two, I'm not into violence. So the, the slapping bloody, you know, somebody's in the Foley room punching a a Christmas ham kind of thing. (laughs) Like, I don't care for any of that. Um, The, the athletics of it, you know, the stunt work of it can sometimes be interesting and fun. You know, like you get the acrobatics and people are flipping right. over. Right, yeah, you know, it's stuff a spectacle, and all that kind of, like, sure. That can be fun. But it gets, that even gets boring after a while. I'm like, I, okay, I've seen people do a double back flick into a kick in the face, whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, so for me, like, it has to be, it should reveal something interesting. Um, it should be shot in a way that's interesting. Like there was the thing, again, you know, going back to Daredevil, the scene where we have the uh, guy who in the back seat who had been singing that um, song and then we're just kind of twirling the camera around him as yeah. in the background, you know, um, everybody gets their asses kicked, you know. Um, and then, of course, that guy ends up getting killed. But um, but I mean, like something like that, I think, can be really beautiful. But the the general the way that we go to it so much, it's just, OK, now here's the point where, you know, they, they fight and somebody gets thrown across the room and then there's blood and then like I'm bored by that. But when a fight scene does something really interesting and the, even the visual way that they expressed Luke's power yeah. was so lovely and and it was he was being gentle. This was him being gentle, Mm -hmm. using only enough power so that he could get the guys off of him, but he wouldn't necessarily hurt them. 
that is so expressive and and of course it was a big reveal because up until then we didn't know that he was you know super powered um and the idea of seeing like a big guy like that who was clearly going to be able to hold his own to a certain degree anyway just uh, he's a big guy you know being saved by jessica like that's what you're expecting like oh the big guy has to be saved by the little girl (laughs) who's 105 pounds dripping wet you know um so you have that it's a nice turn that she has all this power and he doesn't need her you know so i i loved the way that they did that whole thing oh yeah yeah there's all this amazing story stuff and real talk that scene is shot like a champ it's so the cinematography yeah. is very good it's really really nicely and done. this will become very very important towards the end of the season but it right away sets up the fact that both of them are very powerful but there is a massive power differential between the two of them jessica yeah. is working yeah. at it and luke is yeah. working to not accidentally murder people right if he sneezes people are gonna die he is tough he is tough and we we don't we haven't really had it rubbed in our faces yet but we also know jessica's not invulnerable she's not unbreakable yeah so yeah it's yeah yeah and he is when he takes that saw oh my gosh (laughs) yeah uh, and presses it. I'm unbreakable. And I was like, oh my God, what a way to end the episode. Okay. So I hear in the tone of your voice that you thought that was also kind of hot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look, I'm sorry. No. Luke Cage. Do I need to say it? No, I'm using this was as a segue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because we kind of skipped over their sex scenes a little bit. Oh, we did, yeah. sex scenes and action scenes can have a lot of things in common in that they can be... They also bore They're me. very boring. <laughs> they just check a box or whatever. Yes. But we got for real storytelling in that sex scene yeah. very similarly to... The, in fact, some of that didn't make sense until we got to the bar fight. You know, right. when Luke is worried about hurting her and, he sa- and she yeah. says, I won't break. And he's like, you will. We know something. Uh-huh. Also, right. not for nothing, a couple of other things now that now that I'm remembering that there were sex scenes in this show. Right. The fact that when he wants to really intensely look in Jessica's eyes and she can't take it and turns yeah. over, we learned yeah. a little something about both of their characters right there. Yeah. Um, and to circle back to how things are shot, we had an attractive woman having sex with a attractive man. And mm-hmm. there was no male gaze, and there was also no exoticization of his blackness. Yes. yes. He just was, yes. this was a man and a woman having sex, and mm-hmm. we're going to tell a story with it, but we are not going to turn it into, you know, um, exotic, purient nonsense. Exactly. And that was really nice, because it was the, it was a moment you know, of, like, revelation with these characters yeah. and understanding with these characters, but it wasn't it wasn't done in that way. Like, and that's the thing is that like the, the violent scenes, the fight scenes typically, and this is why we see so many like sex and violence, yeah. right? Let's have people fucking, let's have people fighting. That's like, you know what these shows. And so you, there's so many movies and TV shows where like, that's all it is. Yeah. You know? Um, and the fact that we can, that people will go, that these storytellers will go to those places but use them in ways that actually read into the character and the narrative is refreshing and nice. Yep. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just, we just get out of the usual space that these things exist in, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the, a lot of the MCU movies do this also, you know, winter soldiers, elevator fight, 
is mm-hmm. like an entire short story within that story, you know. Yeah. Um, but then a mm-hmm. lot of them are also the end of Age of Ultron where we're just bl- playing a video game, really. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Just blowing shit up. Yeah. And it gets it gets out of control after a while. And Marvel does have this tendency to have these really extended action sequences you know, for the purpose of, look, we're going to blow stuff up and look at these special effects. And here, you know, you you plunk down your money for this seat in a theater. You know, we're going to make sure that you get the theater experience. And and a lot of times the narrative can suffer yeah. under the weight of all of that, you know. Um, so it's nice to see. And that's one of the things I like about the, you know, the Netflix TV shows is that we're honest. We're, we've like taken the scale down a bit you know we're in this small it's new york Mm -hmm. city it's this you know it's this one space this one neighborhood you know um and and we're kind of living within that and our our superheroes are powered you know but they're not like outrageously they're they don't have a hammer that can you know kill everyone and fly them to asgard (laughs) like you know the the scale is brought down into this space where there's room for that you know, emotional narrative as well. And I really love that about these shows. Yeah, I think you can do that also in the big movies, but it's also very easy mm-hmm. to lose sight of it as a creator. That's the thing. Yeah. They can do it. They don't. Right, <laughs> right. Know, partially because they've got this huge stage on which to play and they're like, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to pull out all the stops. It's Cirque du Soleil. You know, <laughs> I mean, everything is is insane. Um, and when you've got that smaller scale that you're working in, you can do so much more with so much less and really make it powerful. And I love the fact that they did that. All right, Lonnie, before we close out with our favorite parts, I have two little etc. moments. All because right. again, I, I have mentioned that I'm bearing my poetic soul as far as Noir is concerned in, the, in these episodes. <laughs> We've already talked about Jessica's door. Yeah. But that cockroach, that mm-hmm. cockroach is Kilgrave. That, oh, totally. Okay, I'm just... Right? The cockroach is the thing that survives everything. And right? even after Jessica flicks it away... It scuttles mm-hmm. into the dark where it eventually resurfaces. Yeah. And yeah. how does she deal with it then? Big, super gross squishing noises. That's how. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. Also, this is a thing that will uh-huh. continue on. But Jessica has a private war on doors. <laughs> there, uh, As of two episodes, she has destroyed three, if we count her own, and the chain on her weird neighbors. Oh, that yeah. That number will grow, friends. It will grow. Oh, we'll have to keep up the door. I am doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, and the door can be a really interesting metaphor. Well, yeah, we're clearly watching people. The Schlotmans are a great example, you know, entering a space. But again, um, going back to Chandler, one of his points is that this person is a principled person who also has all of these skills. So they are able to move between these different shades of gray in their world. And every mm-hmm. one of those means that either it's all a liminal space, like one single liminal space between black and white, yeah. or all we have is liminal space. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I can oh, do I this on that. the noir business. It's good. It's good. I like it. I like it. All right. So, Joshua, what's your favorite part? So, I have like some low level kind of generalized anxiety things, but <laughs> I do not have like a big personal trauma to hang. I don't have panic attacks in the way mm-hmm. that they are portrayed like on this show. So I have no idea yeah. if Jessica's panic attacks are realistic, but they mm-hmm. are story perfect. 
because we yes, watch her are. in these brief moments and sometimes less brief moments mm -hmm. switch from hard bitten badass to terrified victim. Yeah. Mm hmm. It is visceral, mm -hmm. it is awful, and it sells the terror of Kilgrave maybe even better than the scenes where we actually watch him being terrible. Oh, like, yeah. Like, we see no, I mean, he's terrible so, because yeah. of how Jessica reacts to him. Right, but the, that moment, like, whenever we see things go purple, right, and then he licks her face yeah. or he shouts in her ear, um, that actually is, you know, actually it tracks pretty well to like what that experience, because the flashback to mm -hmm. trauma is like that, you know, where like, you know, you're just kind of in a moment and then all of a sudden that person is right there and you feel them there and it does, it can trigger that kind of panic. Um, and I absolutely love the way that they represent that because I think it is really realistic. And I love too that we have this space for her being so incredibly super powered and yet so yes. vulnerable to that at the same time. Vulnerable to Kilgrave eventually, but in those moments she's vulnerable to parts of herself yes. she doesn't want to look at closely. Oh, it's yeah. I just really I just really appreciated that. It was so like I said, I in the moment I was like, I don't know if this is realistic, but I get it, you know, yeah. which is the point of the story. Mm -hmm. Right. That's how story it's, works. Yeah. So. Because yeah. it makes you feel like whether or not you've had that experience, like watching it. And that's what what, you know, art can do really beautifully is use whatever that medium, whatever the medium of the art is, they can use it to really convey an experience so that whether you've had that experience or not, you can feel it. And I mean, damn, this, this show does that wonderfully. All right. I've gone on enough. Lonnie, what's your favorite part? Oh, well, mine's short and simple. It's just, it's the bar fight. <laughs> I love, I actually had a really hard time though, choosing my favorite part. I was thinking about this for, and I'm like, oh, there's the bar fight, but then there's this, and then there's that, and then there's this, and then there's Bob with the door. And then there's like, <laughs> there were so many things that I loved. And the reason why I choose the bar fight is because it's the one I came back to the mm. most when I was like, okay, what's my favorite part? Um, so yeah, but I mean, there's so much in this that is so good. It was really hard for me to actually choose. Well, I mean, look, Mike Coulter is a beautiful man and he beat up a lot of dudes <laughs> and looked bored doing it. And I got to tell you, that stirs some feelings for me too. I don't know what to do with them, but there it is. So yeah, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I just, I loved I loved the way that they actually were able to kind of convey this. It, it was a gentle kineticism, which I know doesn't sound no, right, no, but no, that's, that's what perfect. they managed. That's perfect. Do you know what yes. I'm saying? Like you could feel the movement and the energy that he, he was able to control, but it was still gentle while at the same time conveying such an, an immense amount of power and the fact that that doesn't get done that you know we see these fights and it's all out you know brawling and there's blood and there's hitting the christmas ham there's all that nonsense right we're so used to that we're so bored by that this is a new fresh way of expressing you know a battle yeah, yeah. and i loved it i thought it was so nicely done visually everything i mean yes he's a beautiful man i'm sorry you know, i don't mean to lie. reduce your that could because that scene is amazing i just mentioned all the story stuff that happens in there too yeah. you know which, which yeah. will come home to roost in our final act some of it like yeah. it's yeah. No, no, no. I, I was joking. It's, it's fantastic for a million It's okay. Reasons. No, I mean, I'm not going to lie. He's beautiful. But I mean, there's a lot going on there that's really nice. 
If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I'm at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you whose greatest weakness is you occasionally give a damn. Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. The links to Apple Podcasts and both of our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Jessica Jones, Season 1, Episodes 3 and 4. Until then, we're either idiots in love or being conned, which amounts to pretty much the same thing, 